0: 17 on Palm Sunday, we will go to Matthew. All four gospels uh, include the idea of Jesus' entry into Jerusalem, uh, what we call often the triumphal entry. And so I'll get back to that. But uh, the reason I wanted to continue in John, not only are we there uh, as, our, as we've gone through the gospel of John providentially, uh, but we're also dealing with John 17, Jesus. Uh, some have called it his high priestly prayer. Um, And in a very, very real way, uh, it is the prayer in regards to what, it is a prayer that Jesus by his actions in this week uh, that we are observing uh, makes possible uh, the answer. And so they are connected in a very powerful way. Uh, It's always interesting to me, I was listening to a couple people this week, but the texts that we are so familiar with are often the most difficult uh, to teach from or to preach from, uh, simply because most of us have uh, kind of concluded that we got that one. Uh, yep. Uh, we, but in some ways, I think we we minimize that in that moment to some liturgical uh, rote memorization verse. You just say it, and the magic happens, and it's over with. You file it away. Uh, one of the things I think that the, the harmful parts of that is. We forget the implications involved in that. There is a place for liturgy and there's a place for memorizing the text. But with the Holy Spirit's help, we go back through that every year and ask again the implications of that, which is really where my title this morning came from. Behold the king uh, that would die or behold behold the king dies. Uh, That is such a paradox, uh, if you will. And in fact is exactly what we see unfolding it's exactly uh, why those people who were saying hosanna not just a few days later were crying crucify uh, he was not living up to their expectations and one of the points i think of application in our lives today is that we can we can cry hosanna And blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord and have in mind all the the temporal blessings that come along with Christ having come into the world and even the cross. Without understanding the deep implications of what Christ was accomplishing during Passion Week and ultimately upon the cross. So that's what I would call your attention to too. And that's why the prayer in John 17 is so important. I shared Wednesday night We moved into the idea of what Jesus was praying for his apostles, particularly and by extension us, verse 20. And so I just want to share with you briefly this morning uh, the collection of those that he carries on praying for them after he adds those who would believe through their name. So if you want to look with me in John 17, just to repeat some of those that I've drawn out in regards to his prayer for the apostles specifically and to some degree us, and I included them in this. As in verse 11, Jesus prays that the Father would keep them in His name or in your name, the Father's name. In verse 15, that He would keep them from the evil one. In verse 17, that He would sanctify them in His truth, which is His word, Jesus tells us. And then the, he goes on to the two I want to share with you this morning. So all these, I think, extend in ways peculiar to who we are as, as distinct from who the apostles are. And so I think all of these things were fulfilled in a very specific way for the apostles because they had a, a designated role in God bringing the word to us, which we have believed, which came through them And so we are partakers of the same promise, but not in the specific ways that they were. But we are just the same partakers of those. In fact, I would say it this way. In verse 11, the prayer for us is that the Father would keep us in His own name. And we have been brought to the Father by Christ And so he is bringing us to the Father. He has given us to Christ, and Christ is giving us back to the Father. And he's saying, keep them in your name. While I was with them, I was keeping them in your name. Now I'm coming to you, so Father, you keep them in your name. We know that he'll ultimately do that through the mediation work of Christ, but also through the presence of the Holy Spirit. But he's going to keep us in his name. That's for the apostles Peculiar to their particular task, but also for we who believe on him through their word. So the prayer, Jesus says, is for you this morning, that he will keep you, believer, in the Father's name. The same is true in verse 15, as it was for the apostle, so it is for us that he would keep us from the evil one. I shared Wednesday night. That does not mean that the evil one might not become instrumental in accomplishing the purposes of God in the life of a believer. It did in Peter's life. In fact, the evil one actually contributed... To the, to the very means of his own destruction by entering into the heart of Satan and by through or Judas and through that by Judas's betrayal of Christ, which ultimately sent him to the cross, whereby that one, that evil one, was defeated in that moment. So he doesn't mean here that you will be guaranteed from non-exposure to the schemes of the devil. We just shared with the kids this morning. Paul says, put on the armor. Well, there's an obvious reason for that. <laughs> is that your enemy still has schemes to work out. What he's praying here is that we would be kept from him, from becoming his possession, becoming subject to him or becoming defeated by him. That prayer is for the apostles, peculiar to their role and for us through them in particular to our place as the followers and disciples of Jesus Christ all down through the generations. That's God's prayer, Christ's prayer for you. That you be kept from the evil one. I don't know about you, but I shared Wednesday night and thought about that this week. That is such a foundational security doctrine. In other words, I'm not guaranteed that the Lord will not allow me to be sifted by Satan just as he did Peter. But there is an undergirding reality that says through the sifting, he will bring me through and the devil himself will become an instrument to my sanctification and my ultimate glorification in Christ. So I'm not guarded from from him being used to accomplish God's purpose in my life, which is to make me like Christ. But I am guaranteed that he will not win the victory in those sifting things. In fact, he will end up being utilized by God himself to bring about the purposes of God in my life. That's a prayer Jesus prayed for you who believe through the apostles. In verse 17, it's a prayer as well that you would be sanctified by His truth. He says His Word is truth, which we learn in verse 20 that we are coming to believe through in Jesus Christ through that Word which He has sanctified the apostles with. And so by the inspiration of the Scriptures, they brought those words to their mind by the Spirit and recorded those, the inspiration of Scripture. And we read the Scriptures, and through the illumination and activation of the Holy Spirit, we have been brought into the family of God. We've been brought to be one in Christ Jesus. And for those in that, we are being sanctified or set apart by the word, by the truth of God as we understand it through Christ. As I've just described, that's a prayer for you. Jesus did that with his disciples. He brought the word of God to them and he spoke the words of God to them. And they were set apart as it were unto God by the truth of God spoken to them through Christ. Christ kept them in that word and in that name while he was with them. Now he's going to the Father and his prayer is, Father, sanctify them, the disciples, the apostles and those who believe through their words by the same instrument by which I was setting them apart, your word. By the way, not your feelings, not the trends, not your traditions, not anything else, but the Word of God activated, as it were, by the Spirit of God. That is the instrument of their sanctification and of yours. If you are being made to look like Christ, it is through that Word. If you are disregarding the Word and claim to be transforming to the image of Christ, you are deceiving yourselves. And that is the truth of God's Word. It is by that that we are being sanctified. That's Christ's prayer for His apostles and for those who believe through them, for you who have believed in Christ today. That is the instrument of your sanctification. By the way, that's why it's sometimes hard to hear, right? Especially when it is an arrow that strikes deep within some long-embraced Sentiment or affection, when it calls and shines light into the areas of your heart that you are most uncomfortable with light being cast, that is the word of God and the spirit of God bringing it to bear in your life. He disciplines those whom he loves. And so as Christians being set apart by the word, when the word is brought to bear in our lives in any capacity and shines the light in the darkness, it is because the Father has loved us in Christ. And it is because he is answering in that sense the the very prayer of Christ here that he set us apart by his words. So there are two more prayer requests that I didn't cover that extend more directly out to us, but also include the apostles, and that is in verse 21. Let me just read from 20 down to 26. Jesus says, I do not ask on behalf of these alone, but for those also who believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, even as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, So that the world may believe that you sent me. The glory which you have given me, I have given to them that they may be one just as we are one. I in them and you in me that they may be perfected in unity so that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you have loved me. Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me be with me where I am so that they may see my glory. That is a stunning verse that they may see behold my glory, which you have given me for you love me before the foundation of the world. O righteous father, although the world has not known you, yet I have known you and these have known that you sent me. I have made your name known to them and will make it known so that the love with which you love me may be in them and I in them. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. Lord, help us this morning to, to understand and to grasp and to be moved in our spirits and in our affections for the work of Christ upon the cross Or this is Palm Sunday and it is a memory and there will be celebrations all around of the kingly Christ entering into Jerusalem. But Father, I fear that all across this nation it will be overlooked or unfelt the implications of what he was about to do to ascend that throne or to take that crown. And so Father, we need your help this morning by the truth of your word and by your spirit. Would you answer the prayer of Christ in our lives this morning. Would you set us apart unto yourself through your word? Help me in the communication of these things, and Father, help in the hearing as well, that it might sink deeply into our heart as we prepare ourselves to contemplate the sufferings of Christ throughout this week, ultimately the crucifixion and certainly the resurrection next Sunday. Father, we pray that our hearts might be conditioned this week to truly celebrate the resurrection this coming Sunday we ask these things in Christ's name amen just want to share with you a few thoughts from those two extra prayer requests I've already covered the three that are made directly to the apostles and our hours and these two extend from the apostles to us as well but that they all may be one Notice in verse 21 that he says several things as the Father and Son are one. So the the description of their oneness is relating to the same sort of intimacy between the Father and Son. Now, I'm not saying that we become God in our union with Christ. There is a distinction between the union, the the fellowship of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. But he's wanting something about the nature of that union to be true for us as well. He's praying for us that they may all be one. He's speaking of the apostles, those who believe through their word, and I think by extension every believer down through the generations. The prayer is for our unity Ultimately similar to that of the Father and Son, that uniting that that fellowship and that union, but then he describes that that they may also be in us. And so I thought about this. They have they have wanting, he's wanting here or desiring that they that we have share in a common union amongst one another through our common union with Christ and having been joined to Christ we are thereby enjoying fellowship with the father so it, it is this unity or this oneness of the Godhead that permeates his church the body and so his prayer for us it's not only that He keep us in His name, that, that He keeps us from the evil one, that He sets us apart in His truth, but that through all of these things that we may all be brought to be one in Christ Jesus and enjoy the spiritual unity of Father, Son, and Spirit as the body of Christ. Christ is our head should not the body experience a union. This is really convicting sometimes when you think about it among Christians. How easily our union or our unity can become divided by the smallest little things. Sometimes just the very characteristics of our personalities. We are all not sanctified fully yet. We are all in process. And much of our character is shaped by influences and things in our life and experiences. And when we all come together, we chafe against one another in our fleshliness. But there is a common union underneath that that provides for grace and mercy in those areas. But if you remove that union, the basis of that union, then we just get all tore up about each other's attitudes and character. Right? How many churches have been split up and their unions broken because of somebody had a personality issue with someone else in the church and because they all had relationships, they sided up immediately and all of a sudden you have factions in the church that are rooted in personality or character qualities. That's a forgetting of what unites us. <laughs> If I, if I have nothing in common with you this morning at all as a believer, it is this. I am redeemed in the same Christ as you are. And because we are united to Him, you and I will never be separated. So get used to it. <laughs> It's going to be tough in this world, but one day the sanctification will find its completion and we'll be one and experience the, the, the union of Father and Son where there is no obstacles, no hindrances, complete harmony. That's the union Jesus is praying for. That's going to be ours someday. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. And you'll be the most relieved. Because, because my personality might be one of the most difficult ones of all. So you're going to be really relieved someday because Jesus has prayed for us. I wrote this in regards to that. The unity of the church is established in their common union with Christ and in Him with the Father and in the Spirit. Jesus is praying for that just before He's about to go to the cross to In that same context, he says later in verse 22, by the glory given to them. So this union and part of this is being brought about by the glory that Christ has given to His church. When we exalt the glory of Christ, the body of Christ is sharing or is displaying the same glory that Christ Himself possessed. We are Christ's body. and, And the recollection and the prayer that that be true is the manifestation of our oneness. In fact, he says that is critical to that unity being perfected here. He says in the same verse, verse 22, The glory which you have given me, I have given to them. Why? That they may be one, just as we are one. I in them and you in me, that they may be perfected in unity. Again, why? Why is that So important and critical, not only for our fullness of joy as believers, but also for the testimony of the church in the world. That's what sets you apart. It is this love grounded in our common union with Christ whereby His glory is shining out, being displayed through our love for one another and our relationship with one another and our love even as it extends out into the world at the very cost of our lives that sanctifies or sets you apart in the world. They see that and the inclination with the Spirit's help certainly is that they understand that indeed they came out from God. They have trusted in a Savior sent from the Father. And they have been united to the Son and the Father and the Spirit through the sacrifice of this Savior. They are different from us. So it's to the end that the world might understand the gospel. I wonder sometimes if it isn't because of our disunity and our individualistic bent as Christians that we have lost, as it were, the display of Christ's glory in the world to the point to where they disregard us altogether. There was a time, I think, when people dared not, dared not blaspheme God. I mean, Even the worst sinner, even when I was a teenager, the worst sinner, if you approached him and said, brother, son, friend, if you don't come away from sin and come to Christ, you will go to hell. And the sinner himself, the most arrogant sinner, would say, drop his head and say, I know it. I'm just not ready to go that way yet. But nowadays, it's defiance. They will curse God in a sense. How much of that is connected to believers not grasping the reality of our union with Christ and therefore with one another and and our vesselhood of the display of the glory of God. They see so little of the glory of God and truth coming from the church that they've disregarded the witness of the church altogether. We are irrelevant in their minds in so many ways. Could be rooted here. It could be rooted here. His second prayer in verse 24 is that they may be with me where I am. As I said, that's one of the most glorious parts of this whole prayer. That's, that's our destination. Jesus is praying for his apostles and those who believe through his word down to the generations right into this sanctuary this morning. The prayer to the Father is that they, you, you know brother brian and brother greg and matt and ted and and every other believer in here jesus is praying that you would be with him where he is why so that you might see his glory you've got a glimpse of it here i have I open this Word and by the Spirit's illumination, He shines into my heart and that truth comes to bear. And my heart leaps and is joyful in those moments. But not many hours after that, the flesh creeps back in and I and I lose sight of the light because sin encroaches again and I have to go back to the cross and back upon my knees and remember this hope that Jesus has prayed for me that someday I'm going to be with Him where He is and then I'll see His glory without the, without the hindrance or the obstacle of sin a sin nature, I will have been perfected in those moments and be able to behold His glory. He prayed that for you. Uh, Believer, Christian, that's where you're going. This life isn't it. There's still tribulation in this world. There's still trouble in this world. But Jesus said, take courage. I've overcome the world. That's what he's about to do. That's what the the triumphal entrance is talking about. I'm I'm going into a realm where I will overthrow the one with the power in this world and assure you that though the world may still bring you tribulations, I have overcome it. And by that authority, I will bring you to where I am. Father I desire. I love that word in the New American Version. Jesus, desire. Jesus' desire. I was thinking about that. I have desires and I have to always evaluate them to find out how much of the flesh is involved in the desire or how much of this is a pure spiritual desire. I have to always be checking my desires. We've been talking Sunday night about self-examination. That's what that's about. Lord, where is this desire coming from? What is the aim and the goal and the chief end of this desire in my heart? Is it valid? Is it biblical? I have to always be questioning those things in this fleshly life but Jesus didn't have to question that at all if Christ desires it it is a holy desire it is the heart's desire of the sinless Christ that you those whom he are purchasing given to him by the father would be with him where he is and oh what a day that is let me let me say something when I get caught up in that meditation this life seems too long it really does and when I forget that this life seems too short. It's, too, it's over too quickly. But when you really begin to contemplate what is ahead of us and beholding the glory of Christ and the eternal joy and bliss involved in the, being in the immediate presence of God, this life seems really, really long because that's ahead of us. That's Jesus' prayer for us. It is the desire of Christ. In verses 20, and then you see it again in 25, 26, it is the ones who have been given to him. He's praying that they be with him. I think he means here in his immediate presence, that they might see his glory fully, and that in all of that they might know the love of God, the fullness of the love of God. I could go on with that concludes Jesus' prayer here. In verse 25, he says, O righteous Father, though the world has not known you, yet I have known you, and these have known that you sent me. And I have made your name known to them, and will make it known, so that the love with which you love me may may be in them, and I in them. So now turn with me to Matthew chapter 21, I think. Sorry, 19. Is it 21? Okay, I was back and forth between Luke and Mark. Yeah, chapter 21. Now, the reason I laid it out like I did this morning and getting to our Palm Sunday text is because this high priestly prayer of Christ was spoken of as having been accomplished And He's still yet to cross the Kidron Valley and go up to Gethsemane and be arrested. And the cross unfolds during Holy Week. So when Jesus comes into Jerusalem, He deliberately chooses and selects, sends His disciples out to to take actions that will fulfill prophecies in regards to the Messiah. And And you have to sympathize with the people of Israel For when they saw Him coming in that way and they made the connections in regards to the Old Testament Scriptures, they thought finally at last the earthly Messiah King has come and we are going to be delivered out from under the oppression of the Roman occupation. We are being liberated from our enemies. It's all temporal in their minds at least to some degree. So I can sympathize with them when they're excited. It's it's the Passover (laughs) Passover. It is a celebration of God's great deliverance from Egypt and out of the bondage of Egypt. And here again, now we see the fulfillment of those prophecies wherein Christ would finally and ultimately take His throne and deliver His people out from under their oppressors. And so that's their expectation. So they are excited. They are excited. Matthew begins this way in chapter 21. When they had approached Jerusalem and He had come to Bethpage at the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two... Disciples saying to them, Go into the village opposite you, and immediately you'll find a donkey tied there and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say, The Lord has need of them, and immediately he will send them. And John t- or Matthew tells us here, This took place to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet. Say to the daughter of Zion, "Behold, your king is coming to you, gentle and mounted on a donkey, even on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden." That's a quote from the prophet Isaiah. and also Zechariah touches on a similar one as well, Isaiah 62:11. So the disciples went and did just as Jesus had instructed them, and brought the donkey and the colt, and laid their coats on him, and he sat on the coats. And most of the crowd spread their coats in the roads, and other were cutting branches from the trees and spreading them in the road. And the crowds going ahead of him and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna to the Son of David! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord! Hosanna in the highest! Again, the people are quoting from Psalm 118, 26. And when he had entered Jerusalem, all the city was stirred, saying, Who is this? Uh, I was listening to someone this week, and it might have been Alistair Begg, but he made the point here, that is the question, right? (laughs) Who is this? Who is this? This is a Galilean born and laid in a manger riding riding into Jerusalem under the auspices of the King of Israel. Who is this? If he's not who he is portraying himself to do, this is the highest blasphemy. Who is this? And notice here, the crowds say, "This is the prophet Jesus," and from Nazareth in Galilee. Let me read on to verse seventeen, but. And Jesus entered the temple and drove out all those who were buying and selling in the temple and overturned the tables of the money changer and the seats of those who were selling doves. And he said to them, It is written, My house shall be called a house of prayer, but you are making it a robber's den. And the blind and the lame came to him in the temple, and he healed them. But when the chief priests and the scribes saw the wonderful things that he had done and the children who were shouting in the temple, Hosanna to the son of David, they became indignant and said to him, do you hear what the children are saying? Uh, that's, by the way, this is if, if they, under, they understood clearly the symbolism that Jesus was utilizing as he's coming in, but yet they have already rejected him as that Messiah. And so when they hear the children saying this, they are recognizing that the people are acknowledging Jesus as the fulfillment of that prophetic word in regards to the coming of the Messiah into Jerusalem. So when they say to Jesus, don't you hear what these kids are saying? This is heresy, blasphemous. That's what they mean. And Jesus said to them, yes, Have you never heard out of the mouth of infants and nursing babes you have prepared praise for yourself? And then Jesus left them and went out of the city to Bethany and spent the night there. I think the gospel of Mark indicates that Jesus initially came in, went to the temple, saw what was happening there, departed overnight, came back to the temple the next day. Whatever the case may be. Jesus, a part of his coming into Jerusalem, was going directly to his house. Uh, one, One commentator has said the king went to check on the throne. He went to check on his palace, as it were. When he came into his palace, he saw all the corruption happening in his palace. And he goes back out of town and contemplates during the night and comes back the next day and confronts it in a powerful way as the king clearing out his own palace interesting point of view so here's my question this morning where did they get it wrong how did they get it wrong They were right in some things. All the the praises they were attaching to Him were exactly on target. He was indeed the fulfillment of Isaiah 62 and of Zechariah chapter 9 and of Psalm 118. He is indeed the one to whom those epithets should belong. The the prophets looked forward by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, I believe, and beheld Christ in that way and spoke the words inspired by God that were feeding for Him. And now that Savior has come into the world and the words are attached to Him they were right they were not in error but where they were wrong is their understanding of what that involved he is a king in fact later on you remember Jesus will be before Pilate and Pilate presses him well are you a king or not and Jesus says you say that I am I think the implication is everything you're doing indicates that I am but my kingdom is not of this world So in some sense, as worldly kingdoms goes or temporal kingdoms goes, I'm not a threat to Caesar. But the kingdom I've come up to set up is a threat to evil and the evil one who is at the bottom of all the temporal kingdoms in in many ways or guiding at least the the motivations and the selfish uh, oppression and desires of sinful men. It's a completely different kingdom. To jump to the conclusion to set the context for some verses is the ultimate one to be overthrown. I thought about this in terms of a king coming into a realm where he has in some ways not jurisdiction or there is already a king in place. There is one who is exercising his influence and power and rule in that world. And Jesus coming into Jerusalem in some ways requires if he's going to take possession of that, he has to overthrow the God of this world or the one exercising power and influence in this world. And ultimately that is Satan. And I thought about some things throughout the scriptures. Number one in Genesis chapter 3 verses 1 through 5, you'll remember it is the serpent that is in the garden. He has come against God's people, Adam and Eve. He has come against God's people. And the prophecy in regards to Eve and the destruction of him was that the woman's seed would crush the head of the serpent. It doesn't say, it doesn't say a part of that uh, hope offered to their parents, our parents who had fallen into sin, was that someday there's going to be a seed who comes who crushes the head of the temporal oppressors that you're dealing with, the Roman Empire. It doesn't say one day her seed is going to crush Caesar or one day her seed is going to crush the the Philistines. It doesn't say any of that. It says that the serpent who drew you away into sin's head will eventually be crushed by one who springs forth from this woman. That is the underlying hope involved in all the unfolding of Scripture down to this point. That's who Jesus is coming into Jerusalem to take care of. But they thought it was going to take care of Caesar or Pilate, or the oppressive uh, temporal oppressors involved in their life down through history they thought he was coming to deliver them from some temporal power but there was a far greater power to whom they were in bondage to through whom, from whom they needed deliverance they could if he doesn't provide this then he can bring all the temporal deliverance he wants but they will still be under bondage to sin they will never be free Jesus came to do a very different thing and to take his throne by a very different path than what they anticipated. In chapter, four, uh, chapter 2 of Hebrews, verse 15, it says there that we were all our lifetimes held in bondage to the devil by the fear of death. There were a whole, There is a whole humanity. That is, subject to slavery because of the fear of death that permeates them. And the devil, our adversary, is exploiting that all the time and promising us this and that to preserve life. And we yield up in every corner trying to preserve our lives one more day. And by that he has brought us into bondage. Jesus has come to address that issue. In Ephesians 6 I shared it with the young people this morning, 10 through 12. He speaks there putting on the armor and so forth. But he says there for a specific purpose, to fight against the schemes of Caesar. Doesn't say that. To fight against the schemes of Pilate doesn't say that. It's the schemes of the devil. The reason the believer needs to take up his armor and can do that and can stand in the strength that God provides is that Christ is going to Jerusalem and He's going up to Calvary outside the gate. Jesus, in His entrance into Jerusalem, is inaugurating the pathway by which that's made possible. But it is the devil's schemes that He is equipping us to stand against. Not Pilate's, not Caesar's, not Republican or Democratic candidates, not senators, not neighbors, not co-workers. He came to deliver us from the power of the enemy, the adversary. In 1 Peter 5.8, Peter calls the devil our adversaries who walks about or roams about like a roaring lion, looking for somebody to devour. He doesn't say that Caesar is the lion. He doesn't say that Pilate is the lion or any of those others. He says the devil is that lion that is prowling about, watching for every weakness to exploit in the believer so that he might pounce upon them to devour him. That's the issue Jesus is coming to Jerusalem to take care of. In Ephesians 2, 2, it speaks of the devil here as the prince of the power of the air and the spirit of disobedience working in the sons of disobedience even in that day. That's the problem. That's the problem. Listen, by the way, you can live under Roman occupation and be free. Do you believe that? There's been Christians down through the ages to demonstrate that. You can throw them in lion's dens and they need not yield You can have the three Hebrew children that refused the the diet of the king at the peril of their own lives. How do they do it? Because they're free. They know truth that extends beyond the power of earthly realms. Jesus is coming to assume a very different throne than worldly kings would assume here. And the people don't realize that. Even while they're quoting the prophecies of it. By the way, in Psalm 118, the quote here If you back up in that passage and read that, you know what it says? The stone which the builders rejected. He has come the chief cornerstone. And oh, what a day this is. Let us be glad and rejoice in that. Then it goes on to say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. They just got the blessed part. They didn't get the chief cornerstone had they understood that whenever he was betrayed and arrested and taken in and tortured and scourged and ultimately crucified, they would understand that this is indeed that Messiah because they have rejected him as the chief cornerstone. They didn't get that part. By the way, be careful how you quote verses. Don't find one to to fit your present emotion. Look at it in its context because it may be saying something that is directly contradictory to what you feel. Search it out. Let the Scriptures say what the Scriptures say. In 2 Corinthians 4, 3 and 4, you hear me quote this all the time because it's haunting to me and liberating as well. But it says, the God, little g of this world, has blinded the minds of the perishing so that they might not see the light of the glory of the gospel in the face of Christ. Later, that they might not see the glory of God in the face of Christ. That sounds to me like a serious enemy. I mean, I can live under Roman occupation and have that veil lifted and behold Christ and see His glory. But I cannot live under the oppression of that enemy and be blinded and see the glory of Christ. He needs to be taken care of, not Caesar. Caesar will find his end somewhere in this world, and he did. But there'll be another Caesar to follow Him. And there'll be another dictator or a president or anyone else down the road to follow Him some other day. And they will all come to their end as well. But there is an enemy against the people of God which He has to deliver us from that is far more eternally threatening to humanity. And it is the God of this world. Going back to John briefly, but you remember in John 12, 31, we already went through this, but Jesus says in chapter 12, verse 1, And now the hour has come, and what shall I say? Father, deliver me from this hour. This is why I came. And then down in verse 31 of that same passage, He says, But now judgment is upon the world, and now the ruler of this world will be cast out. In chapter 14, verse 30, heading towards the cross now, Jesus says, for the ruler of this world is coming and he has nothing in me. He has no value in me whatsoever. He has no inclinations to preserve me. One more moment, he just got through saying to them, I'm not going to be able to talk to you much anymore because he's coming. And he has no he has assigned no value to me whatsoever. He has every intention of silencing me forever. So I'm gonna say what I've said to you and I'm not gonna say much more to you from this point on because he's coming. He's right here, he's breathing down my neck, and he has no desire for me to be preserved any longer. He doesn't say Caesar's breathing down my neck. He doesn't say the religious leaders have nothing in me. He doesn't say that Pilate is breathing down my neck and and wants to silence me. It is the devil here. It is the ruler of this world that is coming against Christ in this moment. And Jesus says, I'm going to meet him. I'm going to deal with that issue upon the cross. Let me just say this morning in some closing thoughts, that's why Palm Sunday is so significant. It's a real temptation for us to celebrate Palm Sunday and think of all the temporal blessings that we've enjoyed in our lives. In this country particularly, we've enjoyed many freedoms that have their foundation in the Judeo-Christian realities. But as we're casting those things aside, we're seeing the restrictions of those freedoms more and more, and we're feeling the oppression. And you might and others might gather this day, and they start singing praises to God because He's going to deliver us from this temporal oppression. And I say to you this morning, maybe not. Maybe the Palm Sunday has more to do with delivering you from the one by, by whom you've been taken captive already in, in the adversary and have in the prison imprisoned by him, as it were, have given over to your flesh and your desires, which have brought about the circumstances in our world today. And I have to say with all my heart and with trembling in regards to the, to the oppression that I see growing in our nation and around the world and to the possibility that it may grow to the point of putting to death Christians. But far more critical to you and I is that Jesus has won the victory over Satan. And in doing that has secured us to Himself that no matter how we leave this world under the hand of the oppressor, we are certain and secure in Jesus Christ. He is King. He is king. Philippians 2, we quoted a lot, Philippians 2 uh, 5 through 8. It says of this king that he didn't think it robbery, he didn't think it deity or godliness godness should be something he needed to cling to, but he could set aside this free exercise or independent exercise of his deity and his power, and in the place of that took upon himself human flesh, the lowliest of things, lower than angels took upon Himself human flesh. And among humans, He didn't stay as kings or of senators in the Roman cohort or, or religious leaders in Jerusalem. He went even lower. He took on Himself flesh and in that flesh became a servant, a slave as it were. And if that wasn't far enough, He submitted Himself to to men in many ways, but he, He submitted or He obeyed perfectly the Father. But then even further, He didn't stop along the way. He obeyed Him all the way to the cross. In the face of death itself, He yielded Himself up in obedience to the Father, in the lowliest of forms, although He was God in His identity. He yielded in those moments. And it says specifically in that, And this is somewhat I thought about. This is the coronation. And having seen that, the Father hath therefore given him a name which is above every name. What do you do to kings? You bow. And not only earth will bow, but things in heaven, things on the earth, and things under the earth. So was the merit of this suffering of Christ who is in His identity king and from His birth was was given gifts indicative of a king. So glorious was this life that His kingship will require the bowing of the knee, of every knee in heaven, on earth, and under the earth. And not only that but that those knees that are bowed, their mouths will open and their tongues will confess, He is indeed Lord to the glory of God the Father. That's, that's the kingdom. But the, but the throne was ascended through the cross. Not through political activity, not through winning over the Jewish religion or the Judaism not through, not through some trendy or temporal means. He came with a mission. He came to this earth to get to this place. And when He came into Jerusalem, He selected the, what the disciples would be doing. And it says John says later on that when they did these things, it didn't dawn on them what was happening. But later on, He brought back to mind the fact that they had done these things to them. And then they realized that He had been the fulfillment of the prophecies. And perhaps that was in God's providence to spare them whenever they all would flee later on, that they might be spared to bring the word through which we come to believe in Jesus Christ. If we're waving palm branches today in our hearts, they ought to be for the greater enemy that was overcome, overcame in the sufferings and the resurrection ultimately of Jesus Christ. That's our real enemy. That was our real enemy. And there are people all over the world today probably celebrating Holy Week for some other reason but have yet been delivered, yet to be delivered from the power of the evil one. If you're here today in a believer, Jesus prayed that for you in John 17. Keep them from the evil one. He could pray that and have assurance it's going to be answered because He's going to the cross to do the work necessary that that could happen in your life. You are preserved from the evil one precisely because of what Jesus has done upon the cross and no other reason like I was sharing with the kids this morning you and I don't stand a chance against the devil he is a liar and a murderer from the beginning he didn't get reformed he didn't fall off some wagon from the very beginning that is the very nature of this fallen angel he is a liar and a murderer from the very beginning and you're not going to outsmart him and you're not going to do that in your own strength But Jesus, through the cross, provides for us the armor that he speaks of, Paul speaks of in Ephesians. And we put it on, and in that way, we stand firm. We stand firm. I think that gets more to the heart of what's happening on Palm Sunday. As we go through this week, I pray you'll take time to read through Passion Week and contemplate much about the trial and and watch very closely how this this king uh, endures the worst of suffering. This king subjects himself to the vicious desires of prideful men, yet in the end overcomes the very the very enemy by which these men have been influenced and are operating. Stand with me this morning, Father. We do thank you for your word, Lord. We who believe we are those. Who have believed through the apostles word given to them by you father i thank you for the great security and the great foundation and the great hope that we have in christ as we particularly as we read through the gospels and read about his approach now to the cross there is a gethsemane to go through yet and father there is a cross to endure for christ But, Lord, the endurance of that cross brings to us this morning this great hope and this great joy. He's prayed for us himself that we might be one with he and the Father and that we might be one with one another. These works upon the cross make that possible. Otherwise, we can't be brought into the presence of a holy God. Unless sin is done away with, Father, thank you that we have been liberated from the power of death from the fear of death and from the bondage that has been ours all of our lives through our fear. Lord, thank you for the liberty we have in Christ. We are free to follow you, to trust you, to love you all the days of our lives. Father, in these moments of invitation, I just ask that you would speak to our heart, bring your word to bear, bring your truth to bear in our hearts and Lord, shine that light